Wait a minute. I think I found a clue. Looks like someone was in a hurry to burn something in the fireplace. It's an old newspaper clipping. And listen to this. Welcome to the first episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo. From Coolsville to Crystal Cove, this will be the show that attempts to unravel 50 years of mysteries, meddling kids, and masked villains. My name is Mike Josick, and I'll be your guide through all things ghostly and groovy as I investigate every angle of every mystery and beyond. So grab yourself some Scooby Snacks, fire up the mystery machine, and let's start the show. Yeah! Now the main feature of this first episode is going to be an interview and audio commentary with Scooby-Doo writer Tom Conkle. Tom was a writer on one episode of season one of Be Cool Scooby-Doo. That episode was Area 51 adjacent, and he was promoted to staff writer for season two. Those episodes, of course, have yet to see the light of day, but they're there. We had a really good talk about his experience with getting on the show, working on the show, and Tom gave us a full audio commentary for his episode, which was a treat. I'm hoping that it's something that we can do more with other guests. And uh, Tom himself has also said he's willing to come back and do more commentaries on more episodes as they air. So that's something exciting to look forward to. But before we get to that interview, I just wanted to talk briefly about why I'm doing the show, what my background with Scooby-Doo is, and kind of what I'm trying to achieve here. So I've been a fan of Scooby-Doo since I was a kid. I watched the series on Saturday mornings. It was always one of my favorite shows. While I probably did see episodes from the original series, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, I'm pretty sure the bulk of what I watched came from the Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo show. In hindsight, it's probably a miracle that those years didn't sour me on the franchise for life, but to be fair, I was five or six, and more than uh, likely my tastes weren't overly discerning. I've followed the franchise off and on through all of its various iterations throughout the years. Now I'm an adult fan, a lover of bonus features, and one thing that I couldn't help noticing... I was revisiting Zombie Island not that long ago, and I got curious as to how that whole reboot happened, and I couldn't find a lot of information on it. It was sadly lacking, especially in this age of the internet and podcasts. There aren't that many Scooby-Doo podcasts. I think there might be only one or two others. There are a few books, some interviews, and some scattered behind-the-scenes featurettes that rarely rise above EPK level of information. And that's where I'm hoping a podcast named Scooby-Doo comes in. Because despite being around for almost 50 years, most of the attention as far as looking at the franchise's evolution and the people who have worked on those shows and movies has been focused on the original series, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Now, as the original, and in the context of Hanna-Barbera and animation history, it kind of makes sense. Still, there are like 12 weekly TV series and 30 movies, not to mention all the odds and ends and comic books. A lot of people have done a lot of work to make this thing exist. I think what we've been getting is just a very small portion of the story that is Scooby-Doo. And I plan to do what I can to talk to as many of them as possible and to get as satisfactory a peek behind the curtain as I can. Now, having said that, I make it all sound very formal and structured, but I'm planning on the podcast to have a more organic feel. 
I did actually record three complete episodes before recording this one, and I've kind of set them aside. They were a lot more structured, a lot more segment heavy. Not to say I won't be doing regular segments, but I wanted to go with a much looser feel and just kind of take the interviews as they come. I'm not going to tie myself to any official chronology, and I'll likely bounce around the franchise at will. I don't want to lock myself into starting with the 69 series, working my way forward. There will be some episodes devoted to the direct-to-video films. I'll be doing the new show, Be Cool Scooby-Doo, as we're obviously doing in this episode. And I'm actually hoping to do some weekly after shows once season two of Be Cool hits the air, which I'm hoping to have other people here to talk about those episodes with me, not to do them solo. It'll either be people who've worked on the shows or perhaps uh, people from the Scooby-Doo community. I've already got a number of interviews scheduled and a number of interviews done, so we're going to be looking at creative teams behind the shows, the comic books, and... At some point, I'll also go back and start tackling previous episodes of uh, different iterations in the franchise's history. So, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Scooby-Doo, Scrappy-Doo Show, 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, and uh, just kind of do like a fans commentary, I suppose, or a roundtable, again, hopefully with uh, people who've worked on the shows or people from the Scooby-Doo community. I'll be covering the new comic book series, Scooby Apocalypse. And last but not least, I want to address the scores of merchandise and fandom for the show as well. I think there's a ton of great Scooby merch out there, and I think part of the reason for doing a podcast like this is to connect with others with the similar interests and building a community, creating a conversation. I'm hoping to possibly even interview some of the fans who are doing artwork, uh, collectors who have uh, you know big Scooby-Doo collections, cosplayers, all that kind of stuff. So having said all that, I'm going to leave it there for now and we're going to jump into the interview that I did with Tom. It was a really great conversation and I was really happy that uh, he was interested in doing a commentary. As I said before, bonus features are lacking. So as it exists right now, the interview runs about an hour-ish and the commentary is a part of the interview. It kind of lands smack dab in the middle. But at some point in the future, I will edit that commentary and post it up as its own file so that if you're coming to the site and you just want to hear the commentary with the episode, you don't have to listen to me gabbing or listen to the interview. It's just right there. You'll have the 23 minutes. So with that, I will exit stage right, leave you to the interview, and I will rejoin and pick up when it is done. Enjoy. Hello, Tom. Hello. Hi, this is Mike. Hi, Mike. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I really appreciate you even taking an interest. Oh, it's... Yeah, I, I'm like a special features junkie, and uh, a little while ago... I was watching Zombie Island, and I mm -hmm. remember when Zombie Island came out, and I was like, oh, there's got to be something out there. Someone has to have written something, or there has to be a... Yeah, something. You know, yeah. Something. And there's nothing. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. With the separation of material from physical media, maybe this would be our interview, I don't know. But with the uh, separation of physical media with the extras to streaming, you really do lose that more immersive feeling where you can watch something and then listen to the commentary track or go a little bit deeper and you know see uh, some behind the scenes. Now, if you're lucky, they uploaded some of it. Otherwise, the experience is just stream to stream. And I've noticed even Netflix is kind of guilty of this. When the end credits start rolling, it shrinks it down and says, next one's coming up and clips it right off. I think there is a setting where you can actually change that. Yeah. But 
Yeah, they want you to just kind of click on to the next episode the next and go. And then for those of us that make it, we're like, whoa, whoa, wait, this is yeah, yeah. That's my next job. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, it's interesting how I, I'm the same way. You can I you can't see my camera then, can you? No. No. I was gonna say I have a wall of Blu-ray and DVD behind me. I have about 750 here in my office of uh, movies and television that I, I I like physical media because what I don't like is streaming. It's almost like someone can come along and take a book off your bookshelf and you're like, oh, I want to talk about, oh, wait a minute, the book's gone, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I like to be able to go back and get something that's long since lost its license on Netflix. And I think that Warner Brothers also treats the franchise very much like it's geared towards that, like, 8 to 12 market. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, if it's a show, it's been on since 1969. Yeah. Some of the fans have probably grown up. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we are not writing for that age group at all. We're writing to make ourselves laugh. Yeah. 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 Like the last two, uh, series, pretty sophisticated as far as like the humor and execution. Yeah. And, oh, we uh, had long talks about it. I mean, yeah, I'll be happy to talk about it when we get into the interview. But yeah, the, the, you're absolutely right in that it needs to have a much broader appeal than, than the eight to nine or ten group because, it's it's got its own mythos now, and and you you can ha- you can have something that like you can enjoy and a kid enjoys. The two are not mutually exclusive. You know, classic comedy. I remember my dad taking to me to like the Pink Panther, and I, he enjoyed it on one level, and I enjoyed it on another. Yeah, it's like you know the Warner Brothers cartoons that we all yes. grew up on. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm ready um, if you uh, so you want to do like a, a little interview, and then we'll get into the we'll throw to the show. Yeah, I think... uh, I'm new to this uh, format, so please be patient with me. Okay. Uh, This is the first commentary that I've done with anybody, so... (laughs) All right. (laughs) Virgin territory. We're both going in a little blind. All right. Um, So I guess if if you could just give a little... What was kind of your first contact with Scooby-Doo? Where where does it come from in your background? Okay. Well, you know, I have an affection for it. I grew up with true sort of Saturday morning cartoons. Um, You know, in my generation, literally you watched what was on. And in this case, there wasn't time shifting or anything like that. So Saturday morning was kind of that sacrosanct time where you would sit with your breakfast and watch cartoons. And then as reruns came in uh, as a as a teenager, there were certain shows that I loved, like Scooby-Doo, like Johnny Quest, all those the, those sort of classic cartoons. And for me, uh, it wasn't really about the mystery. It was sort of what made me fascinated with something like Scooby-Doo when I was a kid was just the interactions of the characters and that you knew it was inevitable where things were going, but I was kind of fascinated with how they always got there. Because it was, you know, you, you always had the reveal. It was almost like a magic act. You had the thing and then the prestige. So, so it was like, how do we get to the prestige? And then when I ended up doing the show, uh, I came from a, you know, I come from a sketch comedy background as well. I did sketch for 20 years, and John Colton Berry was a fan of mine. He had seen me perform live. I used to be in a two-man fake British sketch uh, comedy duo. (laughs) It was Dave and Tom. (laughs) And uh, he saw me do this sketch about a mime who goes through some sort of tragedy and is struck talking. He can't stop talking, and he tries auditioning, and he's like, I'm climbing a ladder. I'm going to think he's doing all this sort of thing. And John's like, that's great stuff. And it turned out that we had the same sense of humor. Well, flash forward to be cool Scooby-Doo. Um, it's pitched with the mandate of we want a Monty Python-esque, you know, uh, new sort of take, smart, funny, silly, absurdist take on it. And who do you know that might be good to be staff writers? 
So he, he calls me up and he's like, listen, this is the perfect gig for us. So I got to be a staff writer, which meant I actually got to go on the lot with John and I had a little office there. And um, the first episode I ever wrote was Area 51 adjacent. And when you break down a story, uh, you basically try and get someone to laugh with like three lines. And I was getting John and I giggling and John and I got stuck on the idea of it's Area 53. It's two more secret than Area 51. <laughs> Just started laughing about that. And I was like, you know, it's sort of like if you're in Hollywood, but you can't afford it. So it's Hollywood adjacent. And then we started doing Area 51 adjacent. And then I love science fiction. So I have a ridiculous amount of knowledge about Area 51 and, um, you know, alien tech. And I have a love of protocol. You know, I love silly military protocol, which is what a lot of the scenes sort of grew out of. And I also work as a voice actor. So I kind of had my eye on some of the characters as I was doing. I was like, I, I was actually the voice in Giant Problems. I played the uh, some of the Irish characters in that. Like in the beginning, that's my voice. Right. And so I kind of and the leprechaun, too. right? Yes. And um, I, I ended up just sort of having fun going, well, what would I want to see? And there's a certain format that you have to structure everything. John John Colton Berry is so much fun to write with because he's a hilarious guy, but he has no ego about a good joke coming from someone else or letting you be yourself and your voice and enhancing what you are trying to do rather than impose his own agenda. And he's a terrific audience. If you can get him laughing, it's the best feeling in the world. Some of our fondest memories are sometimes we'd ride home together, you know, from doing Be Cool Scooby-Doo, and we would laugh so hard by the time we got out of the car, we're like, are we going to remember any of this? We have to do this in the show tomorrow. <laughs> so we would just laugh in the car back to his place, or I'd drop him off or something, and and we'd be like, just laughing to enjoy it. Like, humor trumps everything. And when we know the characters, then we can plug them in and and say, well, yeah, let's have him say this and that because they're such iconic characters in Scooby-Doo. So my circuitous route is really through the lens of sketch comedy and absurdist sort of British uh, humor, um, taking that classic uh, mythos that is Scooby-Doo. You, know, you have to have a mystery established and all the, the mechanizations of finding it and then the reveal. But inside of that is the absurd deconstruction. So that's sort of how I ended up doing the first episode. And then eventually, if they ever come out with season two, I did a handful of those and I pushed that even more with John. These characters are kind of so malleable, like you can put them into so many different kinds of situations or iterations or variations. And I wondered how you when you were writing the characters, were you sort of trying to put any kind of spin on it or were you trying to be really faithful to the originals or was there kind of a set tone that you guys were sticking to? That's a very good question. Um Approaching the characters, these are character driven episodes. Like I think I think people warmed to be cool Scooby-Doo because they did see the underpinnings of the respect that we had for the characters. We didn't want to do the same old thing with them, but by the same token, we didn't think that um, we were such revisionists or so you know, brilliant so that you know, we can change everything about them. Because to me, they're all aspects of very strong human uh, personalities and qualities. You know, Fred is the uh, unflappable leader who is is a bit of an an id beast if you will and and <laughs> gets 
um, gets them to be, he's sort of a catalyst, honestly. I don't know if you'd agree, but uh, he's the catalyst where it's like, it's a mystery. We have to do this. But by the same token, you can have a lot of fun with someone who's like that. Uh, we often would talk about Gene Wilder, even though he's nothing like Gene Wilder. We thought there's something about Gene Wilder and Young Frankenstein where he's like correcting people. And it's like, this is how we're going to do. This. Don't you see, you people? You know, and we thought, no, that's kind of what we want Fred to be. And, and, and you know, I never would have gone there in a million years. But now that you said that, I see it. <laughs> yes. And and John Colton Berry really pushed to have that because honestly, we like that style and we like him. And John made sure that that voice was in there, but in its own, you know, Fred-like way. And then with Velma, the intellect, you know, if you're if you're getting very metaphysical about it, she is she is often unencumbered by emotion. She's sort of the pure intellect, but also she's a naysayer, which is terrific to have in the group. Where it's those battles that they have in Area 51, we have one where one will, you know, Daphne will put out a a, a sort of metaphysical fact, like, did you know that uh, the, that so many things disappeared in Area 51? And Velma will be like, yes, but in 1953 that was disproved by this. So you have to have someone who does that in the group and then and then with Daphne we we noticed that there was a place you could take her and John calls these Daphneisms where you could gift her even in one episode only you could gift her with some new fun unique quality that either pays off tangentially or actually in the story that makes her more interesting than just being the girl who is, you know, either getting herself in trouble or falling over, and she does get herself in trouble, but we thought, how could we color that to be more reflective of of a woman character now if we were to do it, but keep the essence of Daphne? And that's a tough one because, you know, you want to honor the original, but you also want to push it in new ways. And then with Shaggy and Scooby, we, we're like, they're the Marx Brothers. They're commenting. They're almost so stupid it's genius because you could you could have them be both slapstick and reflexive of what they are, like, this is ridiculous, let's get the heck out of here. But at the same token, we always would have a scene where um, you have the monster and he stands there and they come in, you know, and they're, they're the bellhop and the, and the masseuse, and they get the monster, hold your arm like this, hold this, put this on, put this mustache on, put the, hold this soap, stand over here, now we're going to light you on fire. Okay, got to go. So they're smarter than this this whole thing, too. And there's something fun about them being unencumbered by any social mores. They're hungry, they eat. You know, <laughs> there's there's a sort of uh, jokes that we came up with around. We were like, okay, food, you know, that's, that's a, a, a great convention for them. But how do we do that in a fresh, anarchic way? And my own filter, I mean, I... I I have worked with the Pythons. I did a, a, a show with John Cleese, a TV show. And I learned so much from him about internal logic. Like, you can be as absurd as you want to be, as long as the characters in it believe it, and you yourself as the writer don't use absurdity as an excuse to not make the connective tissue, the structure that is the episode. The reason I'm proud of Area 51 adjacent is, even at its most absurdist moment, that is moving the story forward. And that's really my approach to to writing and even comedy in particular for these characters. Ultimately, it's about character and moving the story forward. One of the really interesting things uh, you spoke about Daphne's Daphneisms, it almost feels like um, when I first started watching the show, I thought it could be a little gimmicky or it's just kind of like, oh, this is Daphne's shtick. But the Daphneisms 
in a way give Daphne more agency and more, I mean, precisely. You learn that she can fly a plane. You learn that she has ridiculous knowledge of UFO conspiracies. Yes. You, <laughs> you learn that she's ingenious at puppetry. You exactly. <laughs> and isn't that a it, much more interesting person to be with? It's like it's like the person you went to high school with, and then all of a sudden you you go somewhere and you find out that they're fully qualified spelunkers. You know, <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I've known you. How do you know to do this? When did it happen that you know this? And it made Daphne just so much more fun. And you're right. It, it, it In the hands of certain people, it could be just an affectation like, oh, they're being weird just to be weird. But that's not how John and I think. We think, no, that makes perfect sense. You would put a yodeling hat on there and you would, in fact, say your <laughs> name that way. And and it's not us being clever. It's that our view is so twisted normally you know, I, people ask me about it. And I'm like, I knew I was different when I saw um, there was a thing that said topless bar. And I thought in my brain, I'm like, that is a bar that goes on forever. You know, <laughs> I was like, that's how my brain worked when I was eight. And I hopefully have stayed in touch with that. And that's what I bring to writing or performance when I'm doing these things is that I it's saying yes to even the most absurd situation, but keeping the character's dignity intact. And I think dignity intact with Daphne is very important. Like it's not a mocking thing. It's that she has temporarily put a beard on, you know, and, and this makes complete sense to her and it will pay off comedically. Not to deride any previous iterations but um just when i started kind of the process of researching and and throwing myself knee-deep into scooby-doo for the podcast i was noticing a lot of early daphne was she had knowledge of fashion right and shopping and it was so up kind of that up barbie time. world yeah yeah and art is a reflection of the time i mean when when you know, Zach Moncrief and, and John were had the mandate to try and take this into our new age, you know, with a new audience. Um, you can't bring that kind of uh, vestigial sexism that, that would be normal then. And certainly I can accept it watching it as a classic. But but you can't have the kind of miniskirt fashion thing play because that doesn't resemble a woman that we know. Uh, any more than one that has a puppet and a beard on, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> you can only push the, that so far. And you're right. The, the older shows are going to be time capsules of a, a different aesthetic. So speaking of older shows, yes. is there an iteration of Scooby-Doo that you consider your favorite? Um, well, I, you know, I have to be honest with you. I did like mystery incorporated. Um, you say that as if somebody didn't like Mystery Incorporated? Well, <laughs> you know what? There's a, a lot of people that think that by going there and by having that be the established sort of mythology that, that something like Be Cool Scooby-Doo is either regressive or can't coexist. And and I think they can. I think um, I think the the aesthetic in that show and, and, and all the animation, everything worked beautifully together. Um, a friend of mine, actually, a guy named Mike Neal, played a villain. I'm trying to remember. It was one of the Scooby animated movies. It was actually quite clever. Um, I don't remember if he was a vampire in or something like that, but I thought he did a really good job. It's sort of whose hands it's in. So, you know, I have great fondness for the original series, I have to admit. Um, if only because 
<laughs> There's just something wonderfully classic about how insane some of the villains were on that. <laughs> if you, oh, yeah. If you and I look at some of them, we're like, really? He looks like, you know, a popsicle with eyebrows or something. And But then you pull it off and it's a guy, you know, it was me! And and I have a fondness for that. And I do like the modern uh, iteration of it, you know, the, just before ours. So I like them, I, I, honestly, for different reasons. Um, but the the child affection I have for the original series is probably was more in my mind, obviously, than than something like Mystery Incorporated. But Mystery Incorporated, I completely appreciate for its craft. One of the things that really stood out for me about Be Cool Scooby Doo when I first, because I was I was one of the naysayers. I was a huge fan of Mystery Incorporated. Yeah, I saw the design of the the, the characters and the show, and I was like, that's not Scooby Doo that I want to see. A lot of people and then, said that. We, I, we heard yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Um, I'm big enough to admit I'm one of them. Yeah. No, you know what? The <laughs> fact that we can have this conversation, though, and hopefully the writing and performance trumped that is a real win for me as a writer and for the people that created the show. You know? I think what, what hooked me the most was, I mean, it was it was sharp and witty and clever and sophisticated, but ultimately there was such reverence for the original 69 series, but it was so much more forward thinking in a way. Like it, it simultaneously existed in both spaces where you were, I mean, you guys brought back the romps. Yeah. Yeah. In in the best, in the best way that I've ever seen them brought back. Yeah. There's a definite, you, you've tapped in exactly what was kind of in our zeitgeist and you got to credit, you know, Michael Jelinek and, and Zach and everybody for allowing these things to happen, even Sam Register, where it's like, we want to bring them in, but we want a reformulation. We don't want to just rehash and go, hey, remember, you know, and let's have this. If you're going to bring someone back, have a compelling new take on it, or at least a reason for them to be there so that it isn't the comedy of recognition, but rather it's the comedy of, oh, you integrated that in a cool new way. Like you just said, you brought them back in a way that I thought was the best way you could bring them back. That's what we were going for rather than, oh, there he is. You know, I remember that. And just wheeling someone out, basically, and playing the nostalgia card, which I think has less um, shelf life, let's be honest. I agree. So uh, who's your favorite character to write for? Who is the most fun to uh, put words in their mouth? Mm, I Daphne, probably in Area 51, particularly when she's meeting the the alien for the first time. Uh, I love uh, some of the stuff that that she, she can do. But I have to admit, I, I found myself when I'd look down the page, I often wrote more for Fred. I'd have to bring myself back. I'd have to reel myself in because there's something about that authority figure who really isn't that makes me laugh. Um, in this episode and other episodes that haven't aired yet, which I, I don't want to talk about because I haven't aired yet and I'm really... Yeah, no, no spoilers. <laughs> um, but there is a natural tendency to take authoritarianism and something in Fred and his sort of, you know, having dignity intact, but then going, I must do this. And, and, and I find myself writing in his voice the most easily, but having the most fun with Daphne because the, the, the weights are off. You know, if you're, if you're exercising, you know, and you take the weights off, you just sort of, sort of feel a lightness about it. Um, for physical comedy though, 
it's obviously, you know, Scooby and Shaggy because we would always try and top ourselves with how can we go back to classic silent comedy, Tex Avery? How do we look at Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers? And how do we get them to be anarchic and disassemble this scene? So writing them without dialogue was actually quite fun, which then the the director comes in and, and on my particular episode, I had a genius director, you know, uh, James, do you know, James Krensky? I'm, I'm familiar with the name from the show. Yeah, but from the show. He's yeah. a terrific director and, and he has a visual style and got it. And, and often episodes are assigned to different directors as, as they are with, with animation. And, you know, I got lucky with this one because he completely gets it. He knew the voice. Like when you're reading it out, you, you're like, yep, you got it. And that's half the battle in comedy is that if if you're forming a sketch troupe, if you have to explain the joke to the other people in your troupe, you're probably in the wrong troupe. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, okay, I've got one more question, and then we'll uh, roll into the episode. One of Shaggy's lines in the show, he says, it's the creature from planet Zoinks. Yeah. And I thought that would make a fantastic alternate title <laughs> to the show. And I wondered if it was ever like vetted as a possible title. It was not, but you are a genius for thinking that. <laughs> the creature from Planet Zoink. The creature from Planet Zoinks. Yeah, it, it would be wonderful to do. I um see those those kind of jokes make make us laugh. Uh, and when and w- the most fun is when you're sitting in the office and you're writing and you have this brief and you know you have to get this thing done and it's actually quite hard to write animation because. Uh, there's normally an axiom of about a minute a page for live action, right. but it can move quite fast with animation. You can move from one thing to another. So you're actually writing more dialogue, more action, and visualizing and, and, and putting the text together. But getting together in the office and reading it to each other and coming up with jokes like that or whatever, if you can get a, a reaction, something out loud, or you literally want to just pick up the phone and <laughs> there's times where... I would literally pick up my cell phone and text some joke to to John. John's sitting like literally across the hall, but he would start texting jokes back to me and we'd start having this whole sub conversation while writing it. Then we'd get together at the end of the day and he'd be like, okay, let me hear this. <laughs> we'd just start laughing because of what we were already talking about. So that's how the best jokes are grown that way is that we didn't, you know, there's calculation in the writing because you have to have structure, but some things make you laugh and you can't explain why. And those are sometimes the best. It has that weird alchemy of the weird jokes that you have between friends. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And if you can make a percentage of the audience your friend, that's all I care about. You don't have to please everyone, just enough people. All right. And on that note, we will set up the episode here. We just need to let everybody know how to like sync up okay. when they're think? watching at home. So whatever you're using, whether it's a DVD or a digital file, just make sure you've got it queued up and paused at time code 0000. And we're going to count down to three. And we're going to start the episode. Area 51 adjacent in a mirror universe. Creature from the planet Zoinks. <laughs> Commentary with episode writer Tom Conkle. Counting down. Three, two, one. Go. Oh, we're moving. So, yeah, with this scene, it really is about how we're experiencing life through technology. And I was just very amused with the idea of the character of Tyson trying to 
get everyone to take this picture and moving people around with the meanwhile this cosmic event is about to happen and we had a great joke with you know we're always obsessed with names and moving people around ridiculously but you can see behind him this thing is happening but he's busy looking at himself in the phone and then he's like hey did anybody get that wait let me check <laughs> They're all checking on their phones as it goes over. They're trying to experience it one level away, which is exactly level, you know, area 51 to area 53. It's one level away from where you are. So then they're all holding their phones up and experiencing it. And to me, that's just wonderfully silly. And then we have the reveal of the alien here for the first time, which you have in the Scooby thing. And he approaches them and they're like, oh, my God, reality. And then it takes them right out into the credit sequence. And I just thought that was a wonderful way to begin an episode where even something horrific, frightening, or cosmic is experienced through this mundane, your phone, or did anyone get a picture of that? I didn't didn't quite see that. Uh, oh, the, the Earth just ended? Anyone get a little video of that? <laughs> so it just made me laugh. And there it is, Area 51 adjacent with yet another meteor. And there's Zach. And now it's interesting, too, with the, the mystery machine, we really tried to up the ante with it that there's I know those two. Um, there's as a plot device, there's a lot you can do with it. And there's James, who's really did a great job directing this. Here is the classic sort of setup. You're moving, you're doing whatever, and you want to pay it off. But. By the same token, you don't want to give away too much of, of, of the setup of they're about to run into this guy and see a monster. So they're they're kind of naysaying, you know, you're hanging around with a bunch of weirdos. And there's a, ah, there we are. But they're the weirdos that she hangs around with. So I just love just the irony of them discussing basically the entire setup of the episode. And they're already in it without realizing the irony of it. And here we have... Just this wonderful setup where he's talking about, I um, I saw this thing. And she's like, were you sure you, you saw this? Like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Which leads to one of my favorite jokes, which is when they run off into the into the desert after talking to him. We got to do some just broad physical comedy. And it pays pays off again much later. This episode is very much about people running off uh, insanely into the desert like, you're doomed! And then suddenly they're... <laughs> snakes and chainsaws and all these different things happen and there's your your influence of you know old warner brother cartoons where they fall the minute they look down which i thought was a lot of fun so here they're deciding to go into the uh into the desert and see the crash site that he referred to and we we have knowledge that they don't they we saw the alien looking at them and it's the classic setup where um, one side uh, believes in the mystical and she finds this device, which will pay off later. And, of course, Scooby and Shaggy are like, we don't want anything to do with this. And she's like, no, this means something. And and Velma is, of course, uh, a font of knowledge, but she is my uh, naysayer in this uh, as with most episodes. And here we get the, the, the scare. They're after them, which kind of prefigures the the chase. One thing I'm really proud of in this thing is is um, in this particular episode, the chase at the end is one of the few that is a very cinematic chase. It actually has. Um, oh, this is this is the scene that I got John laughing uh, the most about. Um, I had this idea of the light coming up, and I wrote it out 
mathematically where it's like, okay, I want nobody to stop shining the light at me. And this pretty much made it through uh, exactly the way I had hoped it would, where whenever someone references something or says something to the desert, this bright light comes on and everyone screams. And it's the absurdity. I'm always there. He goes again. It's all right. Um, the absurdity of of the military being so structured and there's a protocol and the way of doing things just makes me laugh. And the idea that they're carted off now because they are uh, going to take the fall here as the aliens. But the idea that that every time he says something, I was like, I want a light on anyone, anything that moves. And then it's like, well, you're moving, sir. Stop shining the light on me. I heard a shout. You know, that just makes me laugh. Um, here we have just the beginnings of uh, what always, I think, works really well in scripts like this, which is an actual layout, physically laying out the timeline of why we should believe this mythology, the Area 51 mythology. And, of course, Velma is the naysayer. There's always a skeptic or a, uh, a logical explanation for the supernatural. And this show sort of preys on that middle ground between it, because no matter how fantastical the the ghost or the creature can be, it still ultimately has to be something that plausibly could be someone in a mask. Someone at the end can be revealed, which is a wonderfully silly idea. It's actually a very Python-esque idea because you can have an eight-foot-tall creature that goes around and burns things down, and then you whip it off, and it can be an old lady going, It was me, and I never wanted you to live here. And you're like, Wait a minute. <laughs> you were just eight feet tall a minute ago and glowing. And that just makes me laugh. Now, the actor in me has to say this. The... um. The the general and the colonel character I had my eye on. Uh, as guest stars, I think that's the most proud of the characters that, uh, as far as writing goes, because I had my eye on General Stahl. Uh, I wanted to play him. And I was overjoyed to have Mark Hamill do it instead. It's one of those where you're like, you know what? Let's go ahead and have him do that. I, I think maybe that might be better than me. And he, uh, to his credit, um, saw that there was a lot of attention lavished on the writing and the absurdity of that character because the writer wanted to play him. Uh, and he did an amazing job. And let's face it, the 10-year-old me was still high-fiving himself to even have uh, him credited in something that I did. Um, and this, of course, another obsession of mine. I love they're going through the different levels. There's all this protocol. There's things that they have to do to get through the facility. And this entire uh, facade, this entire facility, and they're about to meet the general character, Mark Hamill's character coming up. Um, I love the protocol that they have to go through, which leads up to the interrogation, which I'm very proud of as well. Um I, this also, John Colton Berry, who is the, the story editor on this, I was the staff writer on this, um, we would get laughing about, like, M. What, you mean meddling? No, no, the other M. What's the other, the other M? What's the other word? Meddling has an M. No, it's not that one. We got obsessed with that, which this is a um, baby of, because that makes us laugh. There's something about um, layer upon layer of absurdity in verbal wordplay that I think you can do, particularly in animation, which which is vocal performance and vocal performance um, is, is enhanced by this absurd 
vision, but you can get a lot of expressiveness out of just the voice and doing that. And I think it works really well having that byplay back and forth. There's some episodes of Be Cool Scooby-Doo that I think the verbal wordplay is wonderful. Um, and as you saw previously, the, the Mystery Machine has some extra little features in it, which will pay off later. Uh, to me, good comic writing is almost like math in a way. It's an absurd math, but it pays off logically. It should be unexpected, but inevitable. So all those little things we saw. Now, this interview with uh, each character, a lot of fun to write. It was in the first draft of this that, that the individual interrogation started going, and we pushed it. We wrote a lot more than that, what ended up being in here, but we pushed it as best we could because there's something wonderful about asking questions, and she breaks him down, and he's like, he's the one who's confessing. He's like, wait a minute, you got me! You know, and, and the idea that, that we reveal, you know, Shaggy's name in this offhanded way, and they believe they are aliens because of the odd way they're acting, when if you look at it, it's like the military seems insane in this, and they are. He's like, aha! I got you! What? Aha! And and we are obsessed with ahas back and forth as, <laughs> as much as we can. And there's the musical thing. You can't really go without saying, you know, John Colton Berry has a musical background. I've played piano my entire life. The music in this is great. Uh, he came from Phineas and Ferb, which had great music. So even when they go ah to each other, something about the music makes me laugh. This is my favorite interrogation. This survived all the way through, which I love. I love that he has this serious beat, and he goes, nope, that's good enough for me. And that's a very Tom Conkle joke. Um, and then I just wanted to sort of have him pay it off visually, so he had this idea of them just acting childlike and doing it. It's like, to an outside observer, anyone can seem nuts. The stuff that we do as humans, once you put a little frame around it in a cage, it's like, yeah, there's something wrong here. But the frame that we've put around the military and the protocol that they go through to keep Area 51 is just as absurd. And I think when you follow the internal logic and rules, which we have established here of like how the monster works and what's going on, you can really achieve a kind of special, magical absurdness. This is wonderful here. He comes in, scares them, but all of it's part of an elaborate plot <laughs> to get them to... Um, announce to the world that there's a problem so that um, good things can happen for the uh, the bad guy in this. Uh, one of my favorites with her is meeting. This little exchange, again, is that a verbal absurdity. This idea was topped by John. He blew me away with where the, we had an idea of this and, and sort of the nascent form, and then he refined it, and then when we finally got it in the episode, it just works so well. She's like, well, maybe that's them being nice. Maybe maybe growling sounds are being nice. Maybe blowing up buildings is them saying, hello, we like you, you know, which which is a wonderful, silly, stupid idea. I love that. So he's chasing them around, and what I like about this is it gets very cinematic thanks to the director. There's our clue. Whenever we were writing, there were always beats that you had to hit. You had to to find a clever way of having uh, the clues fall into some sort of logical, um, even if it's only the internal logic of this universe, the logic of the mystery had to pay off. And this, of course, finding the general's uh, key, it's like, hmm, how could how could that be there? But the gang, as uh, as a group, is being manipulated by their own uh, obsession with solving mysteries, which I 
thought was kind of an interesting idea is like, well, you get a bunch and it looks like people that are obsessed with exposing mystery. And if you have a certain agenda that that helps, then this was a perfect episode to drop them into because everyone knows the mythology of Area 51. However, this is Area 53, which is two more secret than Area 51. And there is the reveal of the technology that they have, and it could possibly also be a clue. And as I alluded to earlier, um, I'm very pleased that anything that we see technologically or with the clues pays off in this wonderful cinematic sort of Spielbergian chase in the episode. And often they would do pop music, you know, during them, which was great. They have a couple of amazing uh, songs in the show that they would do chases to. But in this particular one, it just feels right to have it be this cinematic, you know, it's kind of back to the future, one thing piled on top of another, one thing going wrong. Next scare, go in. There, there were moments in it, there were beats that you wanted to hit to scare them, to push them to the next narrative thing that needed to happen. And in this case, they need to get back to the mystery machine. They need to discover certain things in the lab, like, hmm, that's interesting. I didn't know the, the government was getting money to do this or they're running out of money to do this. And it needs to happen in this sort of inevitable, casual way. Love this scene. This is, you know, old school, <laughs> silent comedian. Nope. <laughs> And then uh, that kind of thing I just I absolutely love because there's the economy of silence and knowing how long to pause. Awkward pauses make me laugh. Um, Daphne does some wonderful stuff in the in this episode, uh, not the least of which uh, is her just almost childlike glee at both accepting and denying the absurdity of aliens and her trying to get this device setting off the the chase and you know let's face it people would be killed outright if this happened and that's what i love about it is that it plausibly posits this wonderful chase using the car in a new way you know chasing after here he's activating it you see the wheels go in and uh we're off to the races with it and you can be funny verbally and still have this visual dynamic and narrative going as she gets it oh she's got the thing and when i was writing it I could see stuff in my head. I like I saw what happened, and I was like, gosh, how far can you push it that you're still getting information, you're still being funny, but it's kinetic, like you're going somewhere. You're the, He's getting closer and closer, you're about to touch it, and then all of a sudden you fall down this thing, and we realize, you know, we're going deeper levels, and they're right behind us. Cut to guy outside. Hello? Is anybody there? Oh, my God, I'm finally free! And then it continues on, and it, it's almost the... The joke from, uh, you know, uh, Monty Python, uh, Life of Brian, where they go off on a tangent, have an alien pick him up as he's falling. He goes through this entire chase. Then the, the spaceship crashes in, in uh, back in biblical times and he comes out of the rubble and goes, oh, you lucky, lucky bastard. It's that sort of humor that makes me laugh. This is wonderful. Kin the kinetics of it. And then the final payoff as he tries to jump in. Uh, that was beautiful, and and thanks to John for uh, um, just getting uh, the humor and and adding to everything. I, I do have to say at this juncture, I am so lucky that he was a fan of my comedy writing and and my love of cinema and and love of words 
that we are kindred spirits and that he kept the the tone and the jokes smart and witty and was a perfect story editor on this. He is a, just a terrific writer, uh, be it comedic or d- just dramatic. It's for him all about structure and finding interesting things about the character. He will pace around with a stick and point at things and magic happens. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, and that's why I loved working with him. Uh, my fondest memories of this episode. I love they're they're talking here and, and, sort of resolving some of the internal conflict between the characters and they're still moving. They're still in a chase. There's still stuff happening, but you're getting some character development to them. It's not just kinetics for kinetics sake. And, and again, how things are framed, what you choose not to show, what you choose to show, like look at Fred listening to the conversation. It just adds something. And that's the director's hand. That's the writer. That's everyone. The voice talent on this, it's amazing that that smash cut to the classic, you know, running into the, to the window and then guns coming in from everywhere. And it's like, right, that's it. We've caught you. And I love these military characters, both of them, the colonel and the general, again, just wonderfully absurd. The argument that they have to make between them. And what I liked about it, too, is I did kind of want to red herring it. There was a huge discussion about should it be the colonel, the general, what's who? who's the person who is, the you know, would make sense at the end, uh, but still is unexpected. And, and you could have gone either way, but, but I like how the script sort of, you're like, wait, this guy's he's cool. Wait a minute, he's letting, he seems like a reasonable person. Now, wait a second. And, and. Because of the structure of it, I like they're like, look, stop helping. <laughs> they're turning on each other. This is sort of a, your darkest uh, point in a script structurally. Um, I just love the uh, the fact that the reasonable person in this conversation is uh, is the general. <laughs> the colonel's like, well, hang on, what? If you can get to a point where your comic tone has created the most rational person seeming like the most insane person, that is a win as far as I'm concerned. And Mark Hamill did an amazing job with this voice. I wanted to do that part, and the best compliment I can give you is I can't imagine anyone but him doing it. He did a great job and and made the jokes better. Um, and, and this whole episode is about tech. You know, the mythology of Area 51 is somehow that's where... Ah, it's him again! Um, the mythology of uh, technology you shouldn't have. Hiding things. Uh, things cost money. Research. Uh, that keeping people in fear is profitable. But also, the mystery machine is basically alien tech. Let's face it, it can do anything. It, it's, it's something that that um, is kind of absurd, but wonderful. Is that Well, you should be looking at the mystery machine, because frankly, that seems like it's from another planet. It's got claws in it. It can fly. It can do all these different things. And that's the tech that they're, they're kind of uh, hung on, because they're like, well, they have this... This mystery machine, they must be aliens. You know, this, this machine can do anything. And, and I want, I wanted at least the, the, the mystery machine to have an integral part to the narrative, to, to solving it because the Area 51 mythology is all about technology and that hidden technology or unexpected technology is what Area 51 is all about is that that's what they're hiding. Alien tech, advanced tech, perhaps they reverse engineered things. 
And so, love these jokes here where uh, it's starting to pay off the mask removal. It kind of prefigures that. Uh, when they finally catch who the person is, you've already kind of seen how that works. And then, boop, there he is. And then there's always the sort of wrap-up, which, as I was writing it, I kind of wrote backwards from the script into, well, we saw this device, which could be the remote control that then did it, Um there's a reasonable expectation that somebody would have seen him in the desert. She says, well, this is this is him trying to scare us. We saw General Stahl's security thing. He wanted us to go in there. So now it all kind of makes sense that if it got out that there were uh, semi-credible witnesses, we would get funding like crazy. And that's exactly what he wanted because all his requests for equipment were denied. So it's a somewhat plausible thing, but it's wonderful. Look at his body as the alien. Suddenly he's this, you know, 40-pound creature. <laughs> and then here's our classic playing with... Uh, we started joking about this before even this episode got written, which is meddling. No, what's the other word? What, what's that word? It starts with an M. Meddling starts with it. No, it's not that. If not for those... Oh, come on. Help me out. What is it? It starts with an M. <laughs> and I just... I. I love that kind of wordplay. So it was such a fun episode and hopefully unexpected, uh, but at the same time, wonderfully absurdist. So I had a terrific time uh, writing that episode. And the rest is uh, mainly visual. And there they are, all the people that do a heck of a lot of work to make this happen. It takes an incredibly long time to make an animated episode because... The sound and the voice are not married to picture uh, until the very end. You have animatics and everything that happens, so it's it's quite a process. And that's it. And there you go. That was that was fabulous. Oh, thank you. I I, <laughs> I was trying to you know talk but keep up with it as best I could. Have you you've never actually done this before? No, because that was that was like a textbook audio commentary. Man. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> like I said, it was virgin territory. So you did cover a great deal of the okay. remaining questions that I had, which I thought you would. Great. But there are a few things I wanted to still bring up. Sure. Right near the end there, you were talking about uh, the absurdity of the mystery machine and the technology and whatever. Yeah. And I was wondering, I've always wanted to talk to somebody who worked on the show because the whole like chitty chitty bang bang aspect of the mystery machine. Sure. It was kind of touched on, I think, in Mystery Incorporated, but yeah. it's gone to hyperbolic levels with Be Cool Scooby-Doo. And is that a fun thing? Is it a tough thing to write? You know, it is a tough thing because because here's the thing. Lazy writing allows you to do something expository, like have the machine do something when you need it to as a writer, rather than when the story demands something to happen or you need to pay it off in some way. So you have... It, it, it's the power of having a machine that can do, quote, anything is a terrible thing to wield if you don't have discipline. And what I mean by that is in this episode, as I said, there's a conscious effort there. The episode is about hiding high tech in order to get more funding and do what you can. But the technology does stuff. And in this, the, the mystery machine can fly. It can uh, unmask people with its claw. It's a uh, item of interest to the military. So the fact that it can do those things thematically work with the, the episode, but also m enhance the story. They're not just 
flying because they can fly. They're not just doing that. They're they're using the mystery machine to propel that plot forward in a way that if it wasn't there and couldn't do it, the, the story would actually be over. Like, you, you couldn't do it. You couldn't move it forward. So that the gimmick of having it being able to do anything needed to be mitigated by let's have it do some surprising things, but I don't want it to solve the mystery because why is the gang there if the car can do everything? So you have to be very careful. You can't have that become a more important character than people. Things are stories are not about things. You know, they're about people. And and in comedy, it's too easy to kind of go, I'll make it do this because I want it to and I need it to in this thing. And it's much funnier to have it go, well, yeah, at the beginning you had a thing and it's pulling pulling on his nose and doing these things. But later on, it's it's a metaphor for the car is the technology that can reveal who is uh, misleading everyone in Area 51. Or you want to have that cinematic chase. Well, yeah, it, it, the car, ha- he's proud of his car. You know, his car can do things and it does it when the story calls for it. And for me, that's the discipline of it. And who's I've always wondered, like just going through season one, there's some truly strange and absurd things that go on. And (laughs) mostly more than mostly, almost all the time, it's it's brilliant. But are there any checks and balances for like how weird you can go? Is there ever a concern that you're going to go too far or is there someone there who's like, no, oh, yeah. There's plenty of people that say no. Um, you know, John and I will will push things as far as we find are funny, um, and you have to get some consensus. This is a business after all. Um, there are a lot of restraints that are, are placed on it, not only uh, – n- none of which are time, but also execution. You know, are you able to execute it the way you need to with the animation? Do you have the time to do this joke? Is this joke going to work in a visual media? It may make us laugh verbally, but it doesn't work visually. And you have to be very careful of wasting a lot of time on animation that you're not going to use. But also, if you go up to the top levels of a place like Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers is a business, and it's inherently going to be more conservative. They are no dummies. They know that good stuff and funny stuff will make them money. So they have to create an environment where that can happen, like they did with the Warner Brothers cartoons. You know, Chuck Jones and Tex Avery and everybody had certain constraints, but also were left alone. And I think Be Cool Scooby-Doo is at its absolute best when it was allowed to be... Pardon me. Another animator got his wings. Um, <laughs> the uh, When it's allowed to be itself within the confines of the time... And the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of absurdity that we can put into it without getting so weird that we're, you know, just doing it for ourselves. And we're and it's always in our mind that we're doing it for an audience. And yes, sometimes we push it too far. But the reason the good stuff is good is because some stuff got pushed too far and didn't work. You know, it's better to fly higher than all the other birds than swoop down. And at your lowest point, you're still above those other birds, but you took a chance. So I, I think that you're detecting it as a, as a fan, as a person who just enjoys absurdist writing, that sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But it's more important that you try within the structure to make it as good and funny. Funny trumps everything. That's that's my rule of writing comedy is that funny. If it viscerally is funny, you find a way to make it work and you fight for it. And sometimes you lose the fight. 
in a lot of situations, uh, it's often said by creative people that they, they're at their most creative when they have parameters to work within. Yes. It's the limitations that bring out often the, the really interesting stuff. So, by that same token, do you feel that the work is stronger because you guys aren't allowed to just go kind of to the moon and back, that you do have that tether? Yes. I, there's a reason why there's a frame around a painting. Um, you can color outside the lines as much as you want, but the imposed discipline and limitation, I think some of the most brilliant artists ever have done their worst work when they had nothing but yes people around them or no constraints, I think... Be Cool Scooby-Doo is such a good show because people like Zach and particularly John Colton Berry are bursting with great ideas. And those ideas have to be funneled and channeled and focused through the lens of a classic like Scooby-Doo, which has a fixed running time, fixed characters and things that have to happen within each episode. The mandate is you got to have a mystery. You got to have clues you got to have these things but that discipline it's a tribute to the people that do the animation it's a tribute to the director and to john and zach and and michael and all those people that through that lens they still let some stuff you know sort of sift through that pushed the frame one way or the other but i think there's a more beautiful painting to be had inside that frame than if you scribble all over the wall because it's not focused it's not uh, laser-like as far as its absurdity. It's whatever you feel like. And I think that discipline is actually what makes most things good. I think you're right. It, that That's why we put a frame around things. Now, you and John both have a writing credit on this episode. Uh, you mentioned that he was the story editor. Yes, he always gets a, a credit. He, as story right. editor, you'll notice he's always shares a credit in the thing. That's And to his credit... Uh, he did the most work by being there and overseeing every episode. And I was just wondering how that dynamic broke down for you on writing this episode. Well, he's really easy to work with. Um, I had the privilege of sort of watching him break, you know, we call it breaking stories or breaking uh, uh, outlines down. And uh, when he asked me to do one, it was come in with an idea um, and in this case, I had, uh, you know, the title. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I want to do something about technology. And I, we started laughing about the idea of an area two more secret than <laughs> Area 51. And when the breakdown process happens, John let the writer at least make the first pass right or wrong with some guidance. You know, it's like, here's here's what what needs to happen. And he would explain the characters, you know, he would pace around with his stick and point at the characters and say, this is Daphne. She needs to do this, this, and this, this. But then to his credit, each writer was allowed to go off with their voice. And he was a fan. You're writing for a writer who is a fan of your work. So he let you either fall on your face or flourish with that first draft. And then he was the best possible audience for that draft because when you go through your edit pass and you have to go through an edit pass and he will standardize things that only he would know. Like, for example, um, well, Tom, you, you can't have uh, him mention this because unknown to you in episode four, we already met Bigfoot and did this. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't know that. that a good story editor is telling you the long arc and going, yeah, there's no way you'd know this, but I'm going to catch that for you. 
but at the end of the day, when, when the pass goes through him and then he fights for it with anyone else that it needs to go through, and then he's the one who articulates it to the, to the uh, you know, voice session. Um, I got to be on a voice session um, when I did uh, uh, the episode uh, Giant Problems. Giant Problems, yeah. Um, there are people there that, again, it must make it through that next level of an edit pass of, will it physically fit in the time that we have? You know, a, a joke, you have to get to the economy of the joke to get it to fit. So by the time it's emerged and you get to enjoy it, it's been pushed through several different size pipes and to... You know, to John Colton Barry's credit, to Zach's credit, to all the people's credit, if that voice emerges with any kind of coherence, which I think it has in this in this series, that is just a tribute to someone knowing to leave things alone when they're working. When I think the best, you know, what is it? I think uh, we're onto something really mediocre here, but I think we caught it just in time. <laughs> something Billy Wilder just said, and uh, um, and and I think the best people to work for are people like the people I had the privilege to work on this show with. And in all honesty, I did it as a comedic exercise. I, I wanted to do it. And, and, you know, it wasn't just another show that came along. Literally I got the phone call and I was like, I would love to work with you and do this. So it's a show that I made because I wanted to see it. And that gets lost in the Hollywood process very much. Often people are doing a show because it pays and there's nothing wrong with that. But how much better it is to do a show that um, I want to giggle at and watch again. Like just watching it with you now, I'm just giggling away <laughs> my own stupid stuff. I was fighting to rest restrain laughs myself yeah. because you were... It's it was so your commentary was like so nice and smooth. I didn't want to interrupt it with <laughs> my own like laughing. So I'm kind of holding my hand over my mouth. See, that's the best compliment. If I can make you giggle for a little while at something that is, is in it. Isn't that the point? I mean, I think everything else takes care of itself and we get very lost in, in the process. At least uh, I see on the business side of it is make something that you want to see. And if you believe in it and you want it to be good, uh, you'll find people that agree with you. One of my favorite moments, uh, you touched on it while watching the episode. Uh, it's one of my favorite moments in the whole season, and there are a few, but it's the one in the interrogation <laughs> where they ask Scooby if he's yeah. an alien, and there's that pause, and <laughs> no. Yeah. And he's like, good enough for me. That's uh, that's very me. That's very John. It's There's that's just so something good. wonderfully silly like, look, I'm going to leave. And if I call you in an hour and you answer, I'll know that you haven't left. Beep, beep, beep. All right. <laughs> and then you're out. There's something wonderful about that. But the idea of asking the dog if it's an alien and him speaking to say no has so many layers of wrong in it that that makes Absolutely. I, I'm so pleased you like that. And I'm pleased it even ended up in the episode because I'll be honest with you, I didn't think it would be. You know, it, it didn't occur to me until this moment. Um, it's a bit of a digression from where I was kind of planning to go. Sure. But uh, I have to throw this out or I'll forget. But I think my appreciation of the show, you th just the names that you've kind of dropped in the course of the last hour that we've been talking, you've thrown out the Marx Brothers, you've thrown out Billy Wilder, you've thrown out Monty Python. Mm -hmm. We've talked about old Warner Brothers cartoons, like the, the pedigree of the influences. And I'm assuming that if John was a fan of yours, that John he very is probably much, coming, he, pulling from the same well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think uh, I've heard it described of comic books that there was a generation of comic book creators who came up whose influences were other comic books, whereas the people that they grew up on were reading, you know, the short stories of O. Henry or reading Charles Dickens. Very or, good point. Yeah. And they were they were coming up with a much stronger foundation that wasn't necessarily from the medium that they were working in. So it enriched the overall final product. I think that's perhaps what, when I said that there's such a reverence in this show, like it's undeniable that this show is saying this all came from that 69 series mm-hmm. or, uh, or, or show. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that 69 show. We're going to celebrate the weirdness and, and genius and comedy of it. Exactly. Only we're going to do it in the context of a 21st century kind of humor. Yeah. That is exactly what it was in at the at the core of everyone involved in Be Cool Scooby Doo was was a a reverence of that, but a bringing together of very sort of desperate different influences. That to me, it's garbage in, garbage out. It's like, of course, that's what I was interested in. Those are all the things. If all I did was, I'd be an echo chamber. If all I did was parrot back to you whatever animated show is on right now, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna make Be Cool Scooby Doo just like that, you'd be like. That's so what? You know, I, I think you're right. I think because we all love those influences, they're part of our core. It's a bit like if you like playing a rock folk music and you have your own voice, but you meet Dylan and it turns out you and Dylan get along fine and you just happen to think like that. Well, that's very affirming. It's a, You're not aping him. That's It's your voice influenced by all these other voices because... You can't create art in a vacuum. You you, you yeah. can't have nothing to say. You you have to take all the things that you like, resynthesize them, and hopefully kind of find your own voice. So I think you said it really well that this is a celebration of the show by people that have influences from all over, comedically, structurally, visually, funneled into this one show. And there's a lot of love behind that. We wanted it to be a good show. We really want it to succeed in reaching you because you are our people. You know, you, if you are pleased with it, we did our job and there really isn't any other reason to do it. There have been versions in the past where you can tell that the people working on it are a little embarrassed. Right. Like somehow you're by, above it. by yeah. its legacy yeah. Yeah. or its heritage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and there's a certain kind of calculation to that and there's a certain kind of, yeah, if, if you, if you think you're above the, the stuff that you're doing, um, you'd better be pretty darn <laughs> good at what you're doing to, to drift through something and be above it and have that bring something to it. Otherwise, why are you doing it? If you're changing it because you're embarrassed by it, you're not doing it right. any good. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Um, so clearly this was a fantastic experience. Yes. Uh, why just the one in season one? Did they just have the one slot for you? Yes. Or? Yes. Um, the way it worked was, as I mentioned, it takes so long to make an episode. I started uh, pitching in 2014, and uh, there was a couple different slots. I actually did help with some other episodes, just sort of getting them going, but he had already assigned them out. By the time an approval came through to do it, there was just this slot. Um, the thing that happened that was nice is when I was hired as a staff writer for season two, I was in the office and picked sort of my battles and the ones I wanted, and I was included a lot earlier in the process. You know, when I came in on season one, um, I got a tour of the office from John as a friend, 
I wasn't asking for a job. I saw the the animator. I walked in and he had a huge picture of John Cleese in his office. And I said, oh, you know, I did The Art of Football with John Cleese. I performed that. It's a show before the World Cup. He's like, oh, my God. You know, it's a British guy. And and I was like, oh, these are these are my people. And then it just organically happened that I was able to get an episode in in time because it took a year before, you know, in, in October of the next year when it dropped. And by that time, I was already hired and writing the Christmas episode for uh, season two, which hasn't even come out yet. No. Yeah, we're it all, takes a long time. We're all waiting with bated breath. <laughs> I know. It's frustrating. It was you know, strange that they all came out in the sort of all at once, and then it went away, and it's difficult to hold an audience when it moves around. Uh, well, it's and also I'm hoping... been very awkward with the second half or that, that last yeah. third or whatever of season two where they just kind of held off on it. Yep, and then it just kind of exploded on Netflix with little fanfare. Yep, it, it, it's odd, and and we, the people that make it, have absolutely nothing to do with that. So I I yeah. I, I I'm like you. I'm kind of shit going. Oh, okay, you know, <laughs> is if that's the plan, I hope they they have a good one, and I I just want people to see it. I want people to see season two because there's some episodes in there that we're really proud of. You talked about being sensitive to the the time that you're allotted and not wasting that time. I know animation is very different from live action, mm -hmm. but I do know that sometimes things get written and boarded and even make it to like a proto animation yeah, stage the for deleted scenes yeah. before they get cut. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the editing process, were there any deleted scenes for Area One, Area Fifty One adjacent? Yeah, I saw in the animatic. Uh some things that they had to make in cuts in time. And obviously the, you know, the chase scene needed to be parceled out really carefully and it's orchestrated musically. So some jokes and things did have to go by the wayside. Um, almost everything though in the script, to be honest, uh, verbally and, and that was in the final script pretty much ended up in there. Um, sometimes, you know, there were back and forths about refining things, as they hit the vocal booth, that things just needed to be modified or 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 worked better spoken. Um, but for my own writing, what I can speak to, probably my strength is because I'm a performer. I perform all the parts, so I know how long it takes to to do it. I know their voices in my head, and I take dictation from the characters. So there wasn't a lot of uh, fat on any of the episodes. Um, the animatics very closely mirrored it. And when I stylistically was trying to jump in, they let me have access to some of the animatics that were already in process. And um, they are very close to the finished episode. Very close. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned giant problems a couple times yes. during the course of the conversation. So in that first season, you had the opportunity to write an episode and you had the opportunity to perform in an episode. Right. How was uh, that experience different for you? Um. Well, it's it's fascinating because when you've written one, it, it's your baby, and and you have a different view. You're, you have a sort of God's eye view of it. You see the big picture. Um, I've worked as a voice actor for many, many years, and when your job comes in as a voice actor, it's to take what's there on the page that's gone through this whole uh, vetting uh, comic vetting and, and structural vetting and make the most of those beats that you have, but to understand it. So I read the whole episode, obviously, before I went in to record anything. And I, 
I'm able to do a bunch of accents. Like I, I make my living playing Brits in stuff. Like I played all the British characters, like some of the scientists in uh, the Cosmos series for Seth MacFarlane. The, the right. where, whenever the animation is in there, that's that's me, you know. And and uh, the I there it really was that simple. It was sort of you're funny, you can do an Irish accent. Look over this episode, and I went into the booth, and I kind of knew the tone of the show, which really helped, and. My view, I didn't have that sort of God's eye view of how everything will fit in other than reading the episode and knowing how my character fit into it and seeing they always show you animatics or sequences. So, you know, how big is this? What's the space that I'm dealing with? You know, does the character have a funny mouth or a a mannerism or something that I can enhance my performance? And the lady that supervised this, the casting director and the ladies and, and the director they have very clear direction and ideas that they want. So it really is getting everything that needs to happen in the time that you have with the animation. That's your constraint is you can do all this extra stuff, but it needs to fit into this five second slot that we have for the line. So yes, if you want to gift him with on, we and have him be sad and do a giggle, just make sure that it fits into the line that we've assigned because, <laughs> because with animation, you just don't have that sort of uh, latitude um, that you might have with a live performance. So without touching on season two at all, because we haven't seen any of it. Okay. What would you say is your favorite episode? Yours included if 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 that happens to be it of season one <laughs> um i love mystery 101 uh that was john's first one i thought that the the setup you know it's the one at kingston university oh yeah uh, i know it well <laughs> i thought the setup of that was absolutely brilliant um i love the one um <laughs> the one where it's the um I'm blanking on the episode title. You can probably tell me it's they meet the guy and you have to pronounce his name. Rick, his name has to be. Oh, that's the second episode. Yeah. I love that episode. Rick. Yeah. And no, it's Rick. (laughs) It's it's a game of chicken. I think is the name of it. Yes, it is. It is. And that is such a great episode. I, um, but I'll tell you one of the best fully realized, uh, no other culture has more misunderstood the chicken. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a John line. I, yeah, I love it. The, <laughs> I'll tell you, though, for filling out characters, I really all pause on deck. I love what they did with filling out the characters. I thought that was a, a great episode. Um, I, I would have to say I also kind of loved the, the Christmas one, to be honest with you. I thought it had a wonderful, absurd tone to it. And the, the whole pterodactyl thing, which seemed to have nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I loved it because it didn't have any of the maudlin sort of. This is a very special Christmas episode. It was it was true to the series. It happened to be the Christmas one, and it was wonderfully insane. I thought that I loved how Daphne because that's her birthday. It, exactly. <laughs> it was just such a nice counterpoint yeah. to, like you said, that usual sentimental. Exactly. Yeah, I love that episode, and 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 then a pterodactyl shows up, and you're like, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what in the best possible way? It's the what of oh, what? <laughs> I love stuff like that. So those episodes definitely jump out, and um, because I it, it's special to me because I got to do a voice as I I laughed out loud reading Giant Problems. Um, 
uh, I, I met, you know, I knew the writer because he had been in the office with with John and we pass each other in the hall and he did a terrific job with that. So I would say those in particular were my favorites. All right. I guess the only other real question I have is uh, if there was a particular character that you more relate to. It kind of kind of touches on the whole which character is more fun to write for, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But Oh, actually, there's two more questions, so one more after this. Sure. Um, which character do I relate to? Um, comedically, I, I would definitely want to play, uh, with hormones, of course, Daphne. Um <laughs> I think I could I could say that that character has the most comic latitude, but also just has the most depth in unexpected ways. Um, Velma's actually a fascinating character too, but I would say her more slightly more only because you can you can go a little bit more on right and left turns with her, and she's not quite as rigid as the Velma character has to be. So I, I would say Daphne. All right. And uh, what I ask everybody uh, at the end of every interview is basically, why do you think Scooby-Doo has lasted for 47 years? What would you credit its longevity to? That's interesting. Um, it's probably two or three things. I think it was something we started off with when we in the interview at the beginning is that the team is aspects of everybody. There, you... you the, you see yourself in every one of them. And I think the longevity in that is that it's, it's a recognizable thing. No matter where you put them, you, you can see yourself in those characters, or at least you, you have friends around you that you can go, oh my God, you know, they're, this person is so much like Fred, or, you know, they're so calculating like Velma, or Scooby is such a endearing. What I love about Scooby Doo it's funny, the show's named after him, and he has an economy to him, but there's an innocent... You, you, you can say Scooby-Doo to someone, and if they have any knowledge of it at all, they kind of break into this little silly smile. And I think that little silly smile is why the show lasted so long, is because at the end of the day, the heart, the, the beating heart of the show is about the friendship that these characters have, and they're thrown into these mysteries which again are universal everyone wants to know the end of a mystery a mystery is one of the simplest but most ancient stories and story forms there are it's primal that when you're presented with a mystery you want to solve it either you know as an audience member or you'll notice characters and mysteries become obsessed with the mystery and want to solve it i think there's something primal about it so the longevity of the show is the primal quality of a mystery mixed with the quirky friendship of all of these people, everybody has a gang and a mystery machine in them, in their story, and and their their friends that they hung out with when they were in middle school or in elementary school or when you were in college. That was your gang, and you got into trouble and you got out of trouble. This is just a reflection of that, and that's what good art is. That's a good answer. <laughs> Thank you. So before we close out, Tom, if you want to plug anything that you're currently involved in or want people to pay attention to... Yes, actually, um, I, I've been working in the last year on a, uh, if you like mystery, it's a, um, a mystery crime thriller noir called Trouble Is My Business. Uh, it's very witty. It's sort of uh, a throwback. If you, if you literally took a, a Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler or Ross MacDonald book from the 30s and 40s, it is the essence of what uh, hard-boiled fiction and even humorous fiction within that context 
Uh, it's a feature film called Trouble Is My Business that I uh, co-wrote uh, with Brittany Powell. Uh, and uh, it's coming out as a feature film in 2017. So please look for uh, Trouble Is My Business, particularly if you enjoy a good mystery. And how will people find this? Uh, it will be available through uh, video on demand, uh, limited theatrical, and uh, on Blu-ray and DVD. Is there a website or anywhere they can get information? Yes. It's um, amazing this was available. It is troubleismy.biz, B-I-Z. Troubleismy.biz. Clever. <laughs> and are you available on any social media, Twitter or Instagram yes. or anything? I'd love to hear from you. My Twitter is very easy. It's at Tom Conkle, K-O-N-K-L-E. Um, I also have a, a Facebook. If you look up Tom Conkle, uh, you will find that. And uh, you please send me a, a note, say hi, and... Uh, uh, I'll be posting about my projects whenever they come up uh, on Twitter or on Facebook. All right. Well, thanks for doing this, Tom. Uh, it was a great commentary. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really uh, enjoyed it. I hope maybe uh, when season two comes out and your episodes roll around, you might come back and uh, do another one of these. I would love to. I had a great time, and it's so nice to talk to, to you, Mike, because I can tell that you have uh, both an appreciation for the material but also just a, a love of the storytelling and the craft that goes into this. And we appreciate that, that you're the, you're the person that we're doing these shows for. And, and thank you for reaching out. I always suspected you were doing it for me. That's so right. I, I appreciate the, uh, that's right. We can <laughs> the stop talking you now. <laughs> you're our people. All right. Thanks a lot, Tom. Thank you very much. And there you have it. That was my interview with Tom Conkle, writer for Be Cool Scooby-Doo, and the exclusive to a podcast named Scooby-Doo commentary for his episode, Area 51 Adjacent. I hope you enjoyed it. Tom said that he'd be willing to come back and do more, so I'm excited to have him back when Season 2 finally hits the air. That'll be exciting just to have Season 2 hit the air, period, but there you go. I'm also hoping to get some other people to participate in commentaries as well. Hopefully you're along for the ride. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm not sure when the next episode will get posted. Like I said earlier, I'm going with kind of a more loosey-goosey, free-flow sort of format. I think rather than force content, if there's nothing going on and I'm just making an episode for the sake of making an episode, that's a lot harder than just having an interview or having something in the news to talk about and putting something together then and getting it up. And the way you'd keep track of that is checking us out on our Facebook page, which is ScoobyDooCast on Facebook or at ScoobyDooCast on Twitter. Let me know what you thought of the episode in the Facebook comments or you can put something on Twitter. I guess if we need a hashtag, hashtag APNSDEP1. That sounds good to me. There's also a ScoobyDooCast Instagram account which you can also subscribe to. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Rate and review the show. It always helps with uh, podcast standings to get uh, ratings and reviews. Higher the rating, the better. But you got to go with what's in your heart. And with that, we bring the inaugural episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo to a close. I had a lot of fun putting this together. Thanks again for joining me. I look forward to coming back, solving some more mysteries, and digging the dew. Take care, and we'll see you next time.